HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Season two of Meet and Three is almost here. We're kicking off with a show all about football. I am excited. So much fun. <laughs> we'll tell you how to master the tailgating scene with help from some Atlanta chefs. The sky's the limit when it comes to tailgating. Yeah, do something that you, you can pull off without stressing yourself too much. Then we'll look at what's good and bad about players' diets whether they're an NFL star or just made the JV team at their high school. And that's when I was told the first time, well, just take them to McDonald's and feed them feed Big Macs and milkshakes. There's a greater percentage of guys that have a, a, a clear focus on what they're putting in their body. You know, in SEC school, people are fans, but we also have to realize that they're kids. They're 18 to 22, 23-year-olds. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when Season 2 drops. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Ray Isle. We'll talk to Ray about 40 wines that change the way we drink. We'll talk about Georgian wines. We'll talk wine trends and more. Ray brought in an Aussie wine for us to taste for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. All right, Ray Isle has been the executive wine editor at Food & Wine magazine for about the past 10 years. Uh, he was deputy wine editor at American Express Publishing. You ever talk about that? Well, well wait, 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 let me move on. He'll <laughs> yeah. come back. He was the managing editor with my buddy Josh Green at Wine & Spirits magazine. And Ray has also contributed to Fortune and Travel and & Leisure, among other magazines. Ray, why is he in wine? How did he get in wine? He cut his teeth in wine as a cellar rat. He worked harvest. He was a wine supplier rep for a port company. And now we're going to find out how he got to uh, Food & Wine magazine. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Ray. It's, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. All right, so Ray, s- give everyone some context. Set the record straight. <laughs> yeah. so, give um, me a quick background on your journey in life and wine that got you currently and presently to uh, Food & Wine magazine. Yeah, so um, I mean, the, the, the initial thing is that I didn't start out in, wi- in a wine-drinking family in the slightest. I grew up in Texas. Um, um, not dad, a wine-drinking state. Not a, well, not a wine-drinking state, though. It's become more of one. Actually, okay. Houston's become a great restaurant town. True. But at the time I was growing up, not so much. Right. <laughs> so, so um, I I didn't grow up with it. I kind of fell in love with wine when I had a, a girlfriend in grad school. Actually, I was in grad school in literature, and and she worked at a high end restaurant outside Boston. Um, I used to go hang out at the um, 
bar and wait for you know wait for her to get off work. Uh, bad guys behind the bar pour me things, and I tasted them and kind of thought, "Ooh, this stuff's actually pretty tasty." And it was a slippery slope, a gradual slippery slope. Though I, the, I was in academia, I was I was a grad student in creative writing and then and a lecturer, and but the grad fellowship took me to the Bay Area, and when I was there, that put me close to wineries. I started hanging out at wineries. I started working part time at wineries. I started working full time during harvest at wineries, and then I got to this turning point where I was like, "Hmm, academia or wine?" <laughs> and I just took like a hard right turn towards wine because I was so that that was the moment. Yeah, that was the moment. That I mean, was no turning back. Uh, no turning back, and and no regrets. I mean, I I you know it for all sorts of reasons. I love the people in the wine business, and I love wine itself. And I also, somewhat to my surprise, found that writing, which I'd been doing all along through there, my subject turned out to be wine, which I didn't even realize at the time. And so um, I got lucky. It was a little while before the wine and the writing came together. There was some, right. um, there was a hauling of a wine bag around New York trying to sell port to people. So it's an easy thing to do in August, you know. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> it's a like, heavy. you want to taste the port? They're like, go away. Get out of my Quick store. Quick question. <laughs> do you think if you did not make the trip out west that the influences of being physically close to that and, you know, that and whole Napa, Sonoma area is very you know, yeah. beautiful, that maybe... Oh, I think I would. there wouldn't be a chance I'd be in the wine business. I mean, and really? I, you know, I'm, an, I'm in the magazine business. I'm obviously an editor at, at Food & Wine, right. but I think of myself as being in the wine business or a wine guy or a wine person or whatever. And if I'd gotten a graduate fellowship um, in writing at, you know, Iowa or Michigan or, or, or Boston or something... I don't think there's a. I don't think there's any yeah. chance I'd be in the wine business. That's I'd be a guy who liked wine. I'd, I'd buy the stuff, right. but I got right. lucky. So let's move from the port to get yeah. me to the present. <laughs> well, so the, I was selling port, and you know it is literally. I mean, anybody who's worked in wine sales knows it's tough. You know, it's it's and selling port is you know it's like, hey, I got a bottle place today. I'm really excited. You know, it's like one <laughs> bottle. Woo. Um, but what happened was I was freelancing on the side, a little bit about wine, but kind of in in all sorts of contexts. Um, I mean, weird stuff. I wrote about collectible coasters for Martha Stewart. I wrote about, you know, um, poetry projects on, on, you know, Governor's Island, all, anything <laughs> I could get published. And Josh Green at One in Spirits read something I'd written, um, profile of the author Larry McMurtry, of all things, in, in the Stanford Alumni Magazine. And my little bio said, Ray Al works in the wine business in New York. And he got in touch with me through that, um, sort of tracked me down. And originally we talked to talk about writing freelance and it very quickly became a conversation about potentially being an editor at, um, at wine and spirits. And I, I jumped at it, of course. I mean, I was, wow. you know, so the wine, I would, you know, it, that was the moment that the wine and the writing actually came together. And Josh I, saw a style that he liked. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess, I, guess, right? <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I, I, you know, he's, he's a good friend to this day. I don't think yeah. he has any regrets. No, 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 no. <laughs> and then I was at wine and spirits for about five years. And then, and then I I moved from there to food and wine, and not, not out of dissatisfaction with wine and spirits, but I wanted to a little bit wanted to draw because I cook as well. I wanted to draw food into what I was doing, Perfect. Um, and, and some practical considerations too. But um, you know, but but that was you know, and then I've just been there ever since. Which right, was, I feel incredibly fortunate. It's you know, it's a great place to be. Right. Um, so let's talk about that because there are things going on. You. A few months ago, you wrote a very cool article about 40 wines that yeah. change the way we drink. The current issue, you talk about a very hot area, Georgia, Georgian wines. A lot of them are made in Amphora. Let's start with the story about the 40 wines. Give me, give me some highlights. There well, are literally 40 yeah. examples, and they represent different movements and thoughts and all that. But pick out a few to give people an idea. Yeah, so, it, you know, I, I, I came up with the article. I wanted to do something that would kind of give a, you know, a lot of what I do as background for food and wine, because we, are a, a, we have a very broad readership, you know, um, is, is I don't want to geek out on things because, we, you know, a lot of our readers just want to, you know, uh, want to understand wine. They like drinking it, but they don't know that much about it. And so, so when you say broad, age, sex, it's not just, it's not a targeted aficionado. It's, yeah, well, there may be a guy there for food that you could pique his interest in wine. Exactly. Right. You know, and it's, I mean, really, it's number-wise, I mean, circulation of food and wine is like 970,000, readership's like 6 million. So wow. it's a 
we got sommeliers and we got, you know, your guy down the street is going to the, you know, Safeway and buying a 12 buck bottle of, of, he doesn't know what, and he wants to know right. what. Um, so, but what I wanted to get at with this, I wanted to do a kind of chronological history of wine through individual bottles and to, and did not just stick to the high points, not just stick to the, you know, the, the, you know, uh, first growth Bordeaux and so on, but it would hit a right. whole range of things. So for instance, you know, one wine I talked about was um, Cristal because it is the first Tete de Cuvée champagne. It's, you know, and it was, and but it has kind of historical, you know, uh, uh, fun to it. It was, you know, it's created for the czar, one of the czars. And, what, what year are we talking? If it's um, we're talking mid, you know, con- mid 1800s, okay. you know, and, and, you know, it's created for the czar and, and it, it creates a category of wine that didn't exist before, which is this kind of, you know, exclusive, um, super high-end cuvee of champagne. At the same time, it's kind of wonderful because, you know, it's in, it's in clear glass bottles right. and always has been. And the reason was that he was afraid of people putting bombs in the bottle and That's blowing them up. That's an interesting story on its own. <laughs> you yeah. know, and in fact, the guy did get blown up. He just didn't, by dynamite, he just didn't get blown up by a bottle of wine. <laughs> so I guess his worries were justified. But at the same time, you know, for instance, I also talked about, you know, um, Irie Vineyards in Oregon um, and David Lett. E-Y-R-I-E. E-Y-R-I-E, which was, you know, David Lett was the first one to plant Pinot Noir um, in the Willamette Valley in Oregon, which, again, you know, this is going up to, you know, this is much more recent, obviously. But, um, you know, this is a different way of looking at how wine history is shaped. I mean, this was a, you know, this is a region that did have some great production, but he saw the potential for Pinot Noir in it. And, you know, those original vines he planted are still there. Irie does this a, is the 1960s, right? Yeah, the 1960s. And, and Irie does a, a bottling from their original vines, wow. Pinot Noir. I didn't, I didn't actually, I didn't pick, I don't think I picked that bottling for the article because it's very limited and I wanted to give people... More accessible. Uh, yeah, that's part of what I do is, you know, I, I want people to go out and buy the wine and try it too. Um, right. And then, and then I also pulled some things that are, you know, I, I talked about, you know, um, George DeBoeuf, the Beaujolais Nouveau, you know. Um, that was a, that is, was a craze, was, right? It was a huge craze in the 80s. And it, you know, and it's, you know, it, is it the best wine on the planet? Not necessarily. Did it kind of create an entire movement in the U.S. of awareness and a kind of, you know, change the way wine is marketed? Absolutely. And if... You know, it's wonderful looking back at those sort of posters from the 80s about yeah. you know, Beaujolais Nouveau at Arve, you know, as here it is. It's, Can I know. ask you a question about that? Because Beaujolais, Cru Beaujolais is yep. very hot, delicious wine. Yep. You know, there's some great makers. Did he have any effect on creating interest for that or that was a total different category and market? You know, it's a funny thing. I think in a weird way, you know, Beaujolais had this very odd history because it was, you know, if you look back in the early 70s, it was actually an, you know, you know, look back in old New York Times articles about Beaujolais. You know, it's on restaurant lists. It's you know relatively pricey. Weirdly enough, it was kind of a cool wine. Right. It, then it became a mass thing with Beaujolais Nouveau, which honestly caused a lot of problems in Beaujolais for growers because prices dropped. Um, um, at one point, you know, I think there was some statistic. I don't know exactly when, but in the you know early nineties, the Beaujolais had one of the highest suicide rates in, in <laughs> France because of farmers not being able to you know support themselves on their grapes. And then you get what happens is, so it, it almost gets forgotten as a category, particularly by the wine trade by sommeliers. And and then you know and and it and then it everybody suddenly suddenly realizes that these Cru Beaujolais that are being produced are, you know. Are, are really kind of remarkable wines and wildly underpriced at the time. Right. Kind of a little more expensive. And you, you know, the first kind of glimmers of that, it's probably Kermit Lynch, the importer who's responsible both for wines like LaPierre, but some of the other Beaujolais who was bringing in, you know, people suddenly go, wow, you can get killer wine for, you know, at the time, 24 bucks a bottle or something. And, and it was almost like everybody forgotten that, right. that these Cru Beaujolais existed. And, and then now they're, you know, incredibly cool. Plus it was, yeah. it also ties in a little bit. It's one of the sort of hotbeds of natural winemaking, you know, that that movement as well ties into Beaujolais too. Right. What's funny is that, you know, looking at DeBoeuf, some of his um, crew bottlings are from growers who then, whose own bottlings have become kind of, you know, culty or something. So, so he kind of got it right. Well, he, he, yeah, I think, or I mean, I, his, his processes are a little different. That, but, right. But it does, pr- you know, it does show that there's some sort of like interesting overlay between these two worlds, right? You know, right. And uh, give me uh, one more example 
a good one. Oh, from, from the, the story? 40 yeah. wines. So, let me think. And, what, you know, I encourage everyone to go back online and look yeah, for the, all 40 yeah, you what, know, entries and stories. About wonderful it. thing about the you know, online publishing yeah. is that it's, it's still out there. <laughs> the magazine is gone from the stands, but the story still, still exists. So um, give me one more. Okay, so, you know... Um, I think you know one of them. I think was kind of interesting is is domain Ott, which um, Rose, Rose. This is quite recent. Again, this is sort of ninety six. There was a story in the Times again about Ott being you know the the wine of the Hamptons. It was the cool thing. Is um, Ott sorry, the, 06, not not ninety six? Is Ott 06. the funny shape bottle? Ott's the funny shape bottle, right, which people would identify just by that. Yeah, but you know, Rose was a was a. Dry rosé was a dead category. Dead, 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 dead as a doornail. No, what you know, you put it on the shelf and just sit there, and everybody look at it like, "Why? I don't want that pink wine." Um, that that article, which I it was oh six, not ninety six. Sorry, was was this as far as I can track down? That was the little turning point of dry rosé suddenly being cool again. You know, and of course now Provençal rosé and that style of rosé is this. You know, behemoth of you know, it's just growing and growing and growing and taking over the world, and just like you know, um, rose all day, and you know, I drink pink, and right. you know, um, fair to say, it came into its stride then, but now it's wildly uh, yeah, popular. Now it's yeah, mind blowing. I, I agree with that. I had uh, Roger Trinquero on the show, and yeah. I know you spoke to him, and he had a lot to do with the whole, you know, talk would, quickly about uh, the white, white zin. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I did put the I put the the Sutter Home White Zin in the article that's too, because that's them. another of those you know crazy things. It was an accident. It yeah, was supposed to you know tell what, them tell everyone what the he told the story too. But what was the accident? Well, the accident was that they were making they were trying to make a, a essentially a, a Provencal style rosé. You know, I um, pigeon I, or, or, you you paired the pear or whatever. You know, it, uh, uh, my French pronunciation is god awful. <laughs> even after Mine's having worse. been in this business for years, um, but what happened is the fermentation stuck, and they ended up with a slightly sweet wine. And effectively, they were like, "Well, we're gonna." pour it down the drain or sell it. I guess we'll sell it because we're not going to pour it down the drain. And they sold it out of the tasting room of the winery and they they really thought they made a horrible mistake and they were just going to ch- just hope, you know, hope to God someone would buy this stuff and it it flew out the door. And the next year they were like, hmm, we'll make some more of that again. And, you know, now it's like six million cases a year and it it really was an accident, which I think Roger is Roger kind of was the marketing guy. His brother was the winemaker. Yeah. So he was responsible for really uh, pushing that. Yeah. Um, so those are great examples. Now, talk to me about the current um, issue out. I think the October issue. You talk about Georgian wines, which touches a lot it's, of areas in the sense of a wine people do not know about, a very old history, the way it's made is different. You know, t- talk to me quickly about that. Yeah, so I want to, you know, it's interesting. The the Ge- Georgian wines, and particularly the, um, it's, it's important to sort of note that it is the traditionally made Georgian wines that are made in, in, in Quevery, which are basically amphora that are buried in the ground. Which are clay. Which are clay. Big clay pots. pots you, right. you dump the grape. I mean, this is a very short, non-technical version. Basically, you dump the grapes in. You, the thing's it's a big clay pot. It's buried in the ground. You dump the grapes in. You seal it up. You know, you uh, open it up a little while later and you take the wine out. Um, that's going to get me killed by everybody who's a Georgian wine fanatic, but that's more or less the structure. Well, it's simplistic, <laughs> but fair. It's simplistic. It's, it's not also, inaccurate. It's also um, has 8,000 years of history behind it. It's um, Georgian wine is fascinating, and I did the story because I th- it's been written about a lot within the wine trade, within to, to the wine business, because it's it's a it's a sommelier obsessive kind of thing at the moment. But it's there's not that much information out there to the to the general wine buying public. These wines are still kind of effectively obscure, um, and I've been interested in them for a while. Um, I have lots of friends who are you know in the business who are you know fascinated with them um ray and i ordered a pizza for the show so life is good she just brought it in and you may hear us chomping (laughs) sorry continue the risk yeah but so um so i was interested in the wines both from the from the fact that they touch on a number of trends they're they sort of like they're the origin point for the natural wine trend the sort of white making wine in amphora which is spread out from Georgia and Eastern Europe down through Friuli and then kind of across, you know, you've got guys making M4 in Oregon now. Um, there's that. Um, there's the historical aspect, which I'm quite fascinated by. And then there's also a spiritual aspect, which I get to in the story I wrote, 
you know, I, I, I managed to get to Georgia finally. That was the, the ambition. Um, it's an incredibly cool country. It's, um, you know, a complicated country and has been taken over most recently in the past by the Soviets, you know. Um, but before that, literally everybody's run over Georgia at one point or another. Right. It's the it, it's a crossroads between the Middle East and and the and the and the and Asia and Europe and um, Russia. It's one of the warmest, most open, most friendly. Um, the people. Most, the people. Most wonderful places I've ever been to. It's beautiful, especially as you get up towards the Caucasus Mountains, which are extraordinary. Um, the traditional winemaking, the, the winemaking tradition, if you subtract sort of the winemaking that's made, that, that took over when the Soviets took over and was made for the Soviet market, which is basically, there's a lot of industrial winemaking too, but that traditional winemaking is a, is a kind of true artisanship um, in terms of winemaking, and it hasn't changed over time. All of that combines with the fact that there's also, you know, it's it's a, you know, uh, Georgian Orthodox Church is very present. And I, you know, I, I think there's a kind of a, there's a way in which Georgia is going there as a wine person um, almost automatically puts you back into what made you fall in love with wine in the first place. Right. It removes That's you from... refreshing. Yeah, it removes you from scores. It removes you from people collecting $1,000 bottles right. of wine. You know, wine there... You know, wine is sold in plastic bottles at gas stations. You know, it's 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 a part of life. It's on every table. Right. That's just the delivery system. Yeah, it's and it's the wine. It's a it's a way that I think things were in Europe for a long time and are a little bit different now. And I but I was you know I was at the uh, monastery in Georgia, the Shabnabada Monastery, and they make wine there. That's what you do at monasteries in Georgia. And the brother Marcus, the monk, you know, I was talking with him about the wine, and he said, you know, um, you know, everything we. We make wine, but we don't really make wine. God makes wine. That's that's his approach. And and I said something like, you know, is it ever weird for you thinking about, um, you know, someone in Denver or Detroit drinking your wine that right. you made here in this monastery in Georgia? And and his Good answer, point. which I, which really got at kind of the heart of what I found fascinating about the place, his answer was, you know, well, um, we're all connected to God, and the wine's connected to God. So in the end, the distance isn't really that great. That's cool. And it kind of blew my mind. Yeah. Um, uh, you know what I'm curious about? You know, when you think of Piedmont, you think of Nebbiolo, Tuscany. Yeah. What what, what are the grapes that you're going <laughs> to, just to let people have oh, an idea, what are, what are they putting in these? Saparavi or Cazzatelli, you know. Some, uh, some uh, crazy uh, grapes most people don't know. Yeah, most people, I mean, cr- not crazy grapes if you're in Georgia. Right. Very, very normal grapes if you're in Georgia, but if you're in the U.S., yeah, there's not a whole lot of representation, though I, though, um, Dr. Frank in the Finger Lakes, um, the Dr. Right. Frank Winery, has made an Acatatelli for, really? for years uh, without, I, you know, most people noticing, I think. Now, I don't know, and I'll sort of fly my ignorance. Those are red grapes? Uh, Catsatelli or Catsatelli is white. Um, Saparavi is red. Saparavi is okay. a very big, intense red, a lot of tannins. Is there a skew towards more white or red, or it's pretty it, even? Actually, you know, I think the whites get more talk, they I do. think, because the because in the amphora aging they they fall into that you know sort of orange wine zone that people are interested in right the I, the truth statistically is that there's more red grapes grown there um but but the a attention. lot of those end up in 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 kind of whatever wines that go to the former soviet you know markets right um, it sounds like a great trip um so that you could read the whole article in the current 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 issue just came out. I mean, may not yeah. even be quite out on some right. newsstands. But um, so, yes, go forth and buy. We walk magazines. to the newsstand. Don't <laughs> run because if you run, you may get there a few minutes early. Right. <laughs> All right, Ray. I, I'm very curious on your take about this because you've been around a while, not that long, but long enough. And I want to get your take on how the internet and social media have changed. Wine, you know, and then I'll ask you, yeah. uh, print it, but, but as a broad category, I mean, good, bad, affect what you do? Um, all of those, I think. I mean, we- weirdly enough, you know, I, I mean, just to break what I do into two things. One, I write about wine, and two, I write for a magazine. Um, the internet has unquestionably affected the magazine side of things, um, but we don't need to get into that as much. But But print media is obviously had a huge amount happen to it because of the internet wine wise you know I, it's also had a huge effect in 
a number of ways. One of which is there's just much more, it's much easier to get information. You know, it's far, far easier to, you know, if you want to know, you know, how, how deep the, the sand is in the soil, at, you know, in a, in a, you know, such and such vineyard in McLaren Vale, Australia, you can just look it up. Um, right. You know, it, and similarly, accessibility, accessibility information. of information. Crazy. On the other hand, there's a tremendous amount of misinformation and disinformation as well. And there's, you know, it's that, you know, the, uh, you run into that thing where it's like, yes, everybody's opinion is out there and it's great to have, you know, um, the, the wisdom of the crowd. At the same time, the wisdom of the crowd isn't always wise. Right. Um, and so, you know, do you in fact trust your peer to tell you whether they like their wine or not? But I think that the one thing is, has happened is, you know, people as a result of that probably get far more wine recommendations from friends or through social media than they ever once did. I think the role of the expert has diminished to There's some degree. There's more democratization. There's far more democratization. It used to be two, three guys. Now it's peer-to-peer, all yeah. these apps and all of that. But your peer doesn't always know. It's a little bit like you know right. buying cars. I mean, it's like your peer doesn't always know right. like whether that car is, in fact, any good. I, I agree with that. Take a bite of your pizza. <laughs> I. It's funny when you talked about print. You know, I have a question, and I'll read it as is. And... Nobody better than you can answer this. And the question straight up is, do wine do wine print publications? Because you're food and wine. Right. There are some dedicated just to wine. But, you know, I mean, you're an executive wine editor. Um, do they still have a value to consumers as a magazine or have they become internet nameplates yeah. f- for that? I mean, because you, you, you threw down 900,000. Yeah, subs six million readers. That ain't bad in the business. These no, days. it's not. It's not bad. I mean, food and wine is big, and I, I mean, you know, but but where is it going? <laughs> well, at, I mean, where it's going is probably not towards more print. I mean, mm. I you know, I think the the digitization of information as opposed to putting it on paper is is an unstoppable force. Um, you know, at the same time, reading on paper is is pleasurable. You know, uh, and magazines you can roll them up, you can stick stick them in your bag, and there's a there's a way of apprehending information from a magazine that's very appealing. Um, I think, it, I mean, you're preaching to the choir. Yeah, but my kids think I'm nuts. <laughs> well, exactly. So there's you know, yeah, the, my kid thinks the divide so, my, right. My there. kid like you know, rarely if what ever picks up a magazine. Yeah. You know, um, on the other hand, I don't think that you know necessarily a tweet is the best way of conveying you know, complex information, as we've learned. <laughs> On right. all contexts, um, president, yeah, president America. on town. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so the digital platform really is. It's it, it's helped it, keep these things, the name out there, disseminate the information, make it available. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's effectively impossible to be a purely print, you know, operation at this point. You have to be, you know, as, you as, did, a, as a as a as a media brand. Let's say if you a, didn't or don't pivot. Oh, you you're you're, doomed. you're, you're yeah. screwed. But at the same time, it's it's interesting, you know. Our our audience doesn't completely overlap. We have a lot of digital readers who don't read the magazine. A lot of magazine readers don't I get read that. the digital. The structure of how you write about things is a little different. Um, you know, the, the role of the visual, you know, the Georgia article I did is online. It's the same words, but it's honestly, it's more beautiful in print. And I, the, I agree. And the, and the, the whole kind of play of, of the of the images in the story with the words on a page to me I just can't replicate that online I it doesn't you know I don't Ray, get the you same and I, we <laughs> listen to albums and you would listen through <laughs> yes. you know now it's just downloading a song a magazine it sort of puts the whole visual and reading experience in front of you yeah so and I I think that'll stay but I I think we both agree if you don't pivot um, that uh, you're kind of going to be stuck in the mud all right. While I have you here, I want to ask you about wine trends. What, yeah. what, what are you seeing? Tell me about what's going on that's still hot, what we expect to see. I'm curious about any varietals, any winemakers, any regions, movements. Well, I think there's a, I mean, there's, there's some, there's a whole range of trends, some of which are very different from the others. So, for instance, I think within, you know, I sometimes think that wine, the internal world of the wine business, you know, the, you know, my friends who are sommeliers, my friends who are wine buyers and so on, it acts a little bit like, you know, couture does in fashion where people obsess about something very small and very, not necessarily high end, but but obscure. 
and that trickles down slowly into the rest of the of the of the buying audience. Right. So, for instance, I think there's a huge fascination right now in in the business with. Um, I mean, it's kind of the title I gave the Georgia article. You know, it's the newest, oldest wine country on earth. There's a there's a fascination with old regions that have been either overlooked or are undiscovered um, or are being rebuilt into something. So, for instance, there's been a lot of interest in the Canary Islands. There's been a lot of interest. There's interest right now in the Azores or, or Azores, if you, right. whichever you want you to pronounce it. Um, you one's know, so, off of Portugal, one's off of Spain. Yeah, and some and some absolutely fascinating stuff going on with people replanting old vineyards. Um, with, you know, sort of, you know, the, the, all these places, you know, had pretty much across Europe. There are there are vineyards that were wiped out by phylloxera and never kind of terraces that were never rebuilt, and that doesn't necessarily translate directly to the person going into Costco and buying wine tomorrow. But it does work its way down the line, and it becomes interesting, and you know, and it becomes a, a kind of a the wave gradually builds. Right. And I think you see that with the interest. I mean, certainly see it with the interest in natural wine, which started as a very obscure, you know, something that only people in the wine business were interested in, and you're starting to see it spill out much more into so the give culture. Me, I had a separate question on that. Let's address it now. Give me your assessment of natural wines, and eat your pizza, <laughs> and. Is it a trend? Is it now beyond a trend? Whatever it is, is it here to stay and grow? Because we're in Brooklyn. Yeah. Brooklyn's ground zero yeah. <laughs> for natural wine. I mean, Roberta is we're like we're sort of a temple. The, the, and you don't have point. to go far, you <laughs> yeah. know, Four Horsemen or yeah. um, June or whatever. Um, t- tell me, give me your thoughts on natural wine. Yeah, Personal, so I, professional, everything. Yeah. I'm, I am... I am uh, I have complicated. Well, I have what I feel complicated thoughts about it. You know, it's it's like the relationship. It's complicated, right? Um, because I think that um, I think it's a fascinating movement, and it, and I do think of it as a movement. You know, um, I think that it has. I, I don't think it's going away. Um, I I think that it's probably going to become more um, present in the kind of the wine conversation. It's it's already very present in the conversation among the sort of wine trade i think it, yeah it, it's they're the early adopters yeah and it's reaching out but i think it hits a cultural moment of, of of particularly you know younger buyers being skeptical about the sourcing of things being skeptical about what's being done to i mean it, it's 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 very related to what's going on in food um, yeah, people are obsessed with organics and food. Yeah. They don't think twice about wine. I mean, yeah. they'll buy a heavy sulfur and manufactured. Yeah, wine. and partly because it's it's not transparent in terms of wine, right? And it's and it's much more transparent Important than it issue. used to be in terms of food. It once wasn't either, and so that cultural kind of push towards um, towards less intervention and transparency about where things came from and and lack of chemical interference and so on is is not just exclusive to wine. So that's part of why I don't think it's going away. That okay. said, um, what I, are the issues? What are the, yeah. So, that's, inconsistency so the issues or? is huge inconsistency. Um, there's a kind of, I mean, to, to get sort of intellectually geek, there's a kind of privileging of philosophy over, over, over technique or process where it's more important. It seems to me within the natural wine context to, um, to follow the philosophy than to necessarily make, um, to uh, make wines that I, I at least find, you know, unflawed. Um, I think that I had an interesting conversation with Alice Firing, who's a friend who we, um, Alice and I have a past long, guest of the show. Yeah, long standing joke that whatever wine she likes, I'll hate, and whatever wine I like, she'll hate. <laughs> it's not actually true. Um, You're too good poster but, people for that, <laughs> even though it's not fair. Yeah, and we write to very different audiences. Yeah. But she did make a good point, which is that there's a, we're kind of in a second wave version of natural wine where, uh, where, the initial wave, there was a lot of really funky stuff out there. And so, I mean, one of the first tastings I did of natural wines, I was like, Ooh. these wines are just like psychopathically messed up. <laughs> um, and and that's kind of, there's been a kind of a second wave where you both are making wines in a natural mode, but at the same time, you're being, you know, rigorously clean in the winery and so on. So right. you don't have like blow your head off bread infections and that kind of thing. Right. Um, 
That's really interesting to me. Um, I think that natural wine has this complicated thing, which is there's no actual definition. You know, it's it's biodynamics, organics, natural, natural. um, You know, uh, low intervention, right? No non-intervention, lack of sulfur, no sulfur. Practice sulfur in the field, but not in the cellar. Vice versa, all kinds of. And the other tricky thing is that you know, it tends to be a non tends to be an approach that doesn't use SO two sulfur as a as a as a preservative. which can work, but is very tricky when you're also looking at wine shipping across countries and so on, and and un, and you have questions of of temperature during shipping and so on. And so it's a there's a reason why the natural is also tied to the local. I think in a lot of cases, and yeah. you, know, you taste these wines in Europe and you think, wow, that's amazing, and you come yeah. back and you're like, what happened to that on route here? You know, in a container. So so it's a it's a. So it's it, here to stay. It, it's getting it's, better. It's, absolutely. It's has here to its stay. issues. It's getting better, has its issues, and at the same time also, you know, raises some valuable questions. And Yes. And, you know, I've always felt with wine, I don't, I mean, I've got a problem. If I like if I like every single wine, there's a problem, you know. So that means I don't have any taste. Agreed. Um, and so I kind of like the fact that there's some of these natural wines that I actually simply don't to me, they're not drinkable, but I think they raise interesting questions right. nonetheless. I agree with you on that. Ray, we're going to take a quick break. Um, I'm talking to Ray Isle. Ray is the executive wine editor of Food & Wine magazine. When we come back, I want to talk to Ray about a few more things, marketing, canned wines. Um, I want to subject him to our wine list, and then we're going to taste the Australian wine he brought in. So you're listening to the Great Nation on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of the Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kaltbach cave-aged cheeses, Der Scharfe Max, Appenzeller, Tete de Moin, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Ray Isle. Ray is the executive wine editor of Food & Wine magazine. Um, Ray, I want to do the uh, wine list with you, but before we get to that, I want to uh, hit you up with a couple of questions. We were talking about trends, and certainly I think you would agree one of the hot trends recently is canned wines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, less canned wines and more the fact that I wonder sometimes, is it the marketing over the product sometimes like i'm sure some sure. canned wines suck and some are very yeah. good but marketing today is like no other time and we touched on the internet and social media yeah i mean well i mean canned wines absolutely marketing is a huge part the, the can is is a package you know it is a it is an advertisement in itself it, right. what what's on the can and that's you know I mean that's been proved by the craft beer world. You you know you and actually to, they've taken to the point of art where you get these craft beer labels that are really extraordinary Crazy. on cans. Um, 
you know, wine's always been, wine bottles are marketing to, you know, wine labels are marketing. I think the prisoner is incredibly popular wine, partly because that label, which happens to be a Goya painting, um, is, you know, is spooky and appealing and hit the right note at the right time. I mean, you can. But I think he hit two notes. That label was very eye-catchy. And that field blend, the little more residual sweetness, yep. is like a huge category. It's a huge category, right? yeah. And additionally, that field blend, that sort of, but what's it's, again, it's that kind of thing where field blends, old vine field blends, were something that the industry was interested in. You know, in terms of you, right. know, you go back. I think I used Geyserville in the article we were talking about forty wines as the kind of er version of that. You know, in the U.S., where they they, you know, where, where Paul Draper tracked down a vineyard that was a, you know. You know, field bin planted. You know, most of these field blends were planted by Italian immigrants in California, right. and you know, and they make some great wines. And the prisoner kind of walks that line of pulling from that tradition, making it a little sweet. You know, I mean, a little touch. You know, of residual sugar and and um and a and a really cool label. The thing about it that's really surprising is it's not a cheap wine. It's no. thirty bucks, thirty five bucks. A it bottle. never was. Yeah. You know, a teen dollar wine. Yeah, it was but always... it's but it's. I mean, it went from successful to. Then it was flipped. It was sold, and it was sold again. And the growth on the on the sort of the massive growth toward the you know down the line is is certainly related to marketing. It's no question. And you know, wine. This is you know this is the thing. Wine is is you know runs everywhere from being a pure commodity product. You know, um, four bucks a bottle, just kind of juice to end up on the table that has alcohol in it to you know to being something akin to a work of art right. um and and it goes everywhere in between which is a, which is a weird thing you know it's it's a it's a it's a peculiar creature in that regard yeah um but marketing i mean i'm afraid that with millennials who don't want to spend a lot of money have a low attention span if you put a product in the right guy's hand an influence or an instagram it's it it may be more about the marketing than the product. Yeah, I mean, that's, not a terrible direction, but yeah, know, we're true wine guys, and uh, that's true. But you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, the the millennial thing, just just you know, since I am not a millennial, um, it, you know, it's, people talk about short attention span and all this kind of thing. On the other hand, I there are more. I certainly know more people in their you know mid early 20s late 20s who drink wine than was ever the case when i was in my 20s i mean wine is is much more popular in the in the millennial context than it ever was agree sort of gen x you know baby context for people in their 20s and i think i always the millennial thing always puzzles me because there's two things there's one there's the millennial generation which is a moment in our cultural history let's say but it's also there's the just the category of people in their 20s who don't have disposable income regardless of whether they were you know baby boomers in their 20s didn't have disposable income either you know uh, you know gen xers in their 20s nobody in their 20s has that much disposable income unless they're not spending on wine right away hit it with a tech you know startup or something right so so it's it's interesting but the the marketing thing you know if you go back you know, even to, I mean, I was doing, I was reviewing a book about the Madeira trade in the 1700s at one point, and there was a very clear definition at the time between fine wine and cargo wine. And cargo wine was both like ballast for the ship and also <laughs> just a product to sell when you got there. And then there was fine wine. And there's there's always been this, you know, almost all, throughout the history of wine, there's been a differentiation between commodity wine and, and what we call fine wine. Back to that. And yeah. what's and what's interesting, though, is going back to natural wine, is fine wine can doesn't necessarily have to be expensive. It just is more of a question of, like, attention paid when it's made versus, you know, where it could be the jug that you put it, you know, right. next under the hose at the gas station. Right. That's a good point. Um, before I jump to the uh, wine list, tell me about, you know, because you are a wine writer, you travel. We talked about it before. You taste a lot of wines. Just give people a quick insight into your tasting habits. Are you, <laughs> you, you know, I'm sure you go in spurts where you taste a ton of wine, yeah. portfolio tastings for the magazine. I mean, you know, give me a typical week, month. How much wine are you it, tasting? Oh, it, it varies a lot, actually. So, it, it, you know, I would say when I'm tasting, I, mean, I don't taste as much as someone who's, who's trying to, you know, review and give scores to 6,000 or 8,000 wines right. a year because it's not the structure of what I do. But... You know, in a, in a busy week, I'll taste 100, 120 wines. You know, in a non-busy week, I'll taste probably 30 or something like that. Right. And it it a little bit 
depends on the arc of production for the magazine. When we're trying to get the magazine out the door, I taste less wine because I'm scrambling. You need to be staring at a computer, present, you know. Yeah. And when I'm traveling, I mean, I was just in Washington State in Walla Walla um, for a story, but I was visiting wineries and tasting through their entire portfolio every winery I went you, to. You want to take and, in as much yeah, as you can, while absolutely. You're and so, you know, um, so it's a it it does fluctuate, and also you know when you do this as a living, every wine you run into is. I mean, you're, unfortunately or fortunately, your your passion becomes your profession. So if I randomly come across a glass of wine at a friend's house that isn't the, something I had before, it's it goes into the memory sure. bank. You know, Everything's uh, fair play. Yeah. Yeah. So you're tasting a decent amount of wine, and up until now, you've probably tasted tens of thousands of wines. Yeah, a lot of wine. <laughs> a ton <right>. of wine. <laughs> Ray, I'm going to... Subject you to our wine list. It's a bunch of questions about our guest preference. Sure. They're simple. We ask our guests the same questions. Um, so the first question is, what are you drinking now? What's on your table? What do you? T- is it seasonal? Is it for an article? Is it a passion of yours? I'm drinking, yeah. I mean, it is seasonal to some degree. Um, I drink... You know, I, this time of year, I drink a lot. Of, I, I I drink a lot of Northern Italian whites. I like I like the the. Give non- me some grapes and give me a maker or two. Yeah. Uh, so um, let's see. So recently, I mean, actually, just wrote it up for the magazine. Um, the Pinot Grigio, not everybody's okay. favorite grape, but um, the Hofstadter bottling. Um, you know, wine. Hofstadter and Alto Adige, their Pinot Grigio actually is one of those wines that make you reacquaint yourself with why someone would want to make if this you grape in the first place. Try a real good Pinot Grigio. That's yeah, what you're talking. It's a beautiful about. wine. I had some wine from Lisneris recently that was beautiful. Um, you know, uh, uh, that sort of zone of stuff. Um, I'm kind of interested in, in some obscure grapes like Timoroso in in Piedmont. Sort of the the Oddball Piedmont white grapes. Um, spell the spell the grape for me. T i m o r a s s o. Okay. Unless I've misspelled it, but I believe I'll that's right. I'll double check. Yeah. It. Um, what uh, else? And Nascetta again, another one from from Piedmont that um, really you know, nice. Enrico del Vicogno kind of brought back from from two or three random little vines right. left in the world. Right. Those are good ones. Um, All right. Let's move on. Those are good. Yeah. You said to me earlier you like to cook. You work at a magazine called Food and Wine. So give me Ray Isles' favorite wine and food pairing. <laughs> Something that reoccurs. <laughs> yeah. I, drink, I mean, I tend to cook probably more Italian or Italian variety sorts of things than, than anything that else. That school of cooking is where I, okay. I land a lot. And um, I, I have a huge fondness for... Um, for mushrooms, <laughs> okay, and so um, I'm just you know off the top of my head, a dish that I've made a bunch is a is a pork shoulder that's braised with um, porcini's and juniper berries. It's a very, but it's also because it's actually finally feeling like fall, right? You know, that's Get it's that a, in the it's a Marcella Hazan recipe that I've made a million times, and that to me, that with any older Chianti or older Pinot Noir that gets that sort of um, forest floor leafiness um, in the wine, you know, you. It kind of gives you an autumnal sense both in the wine and the food without pushing it too much. So the Pinot has to be older. A little age gives you that yeah, earthiness. I, li- I like that. From anywhere, or are we talking predominantly French? Or? Um, predom- well, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing. I mean, I would say predominantly French, but the truth is I probably drink more from lack of ability to purchase the Burgundies that I want because they've gotten so yeah ridiculously yeah, expensive. It's crazy. Um, you know, um, I do, you know, I... I think actually some there's a very good palate California Pinots that age beautifully, um, and I think give me a maker or two. Um, Calera, I love I love their wines. Been around, yeah, classic. Um, I think Hirsch is doing really terrific wines. She's doing a great job. Um, with her you know, dad. I think uh, you know Gavin Chanin's making some nice wines down on the Central Coast. Very nice. Mm-hmm. All right, this is a tough question because I don't want you to think that you're leaving anyone out or you know because of what you do, but. Tell me some good wine restaurants and or bars <laughs> that you like to go to or you enjoyed going to that have a great selection, a nod towards knowledge, all of that stuff. In, Let's it, stay in New York. Stay in New York? Okay, so um, first one that pops to mind, partly because it's close to our office and partly because I just think the wine list is out of control good, is Racine's. Right, um, Pascaline and, and Pasca- Arno. Pascaline and Arno. It's a great answer. And, it comes and I, up. 
Yeah, I mean, it's sort of inarguable, and right. and additionally, period. Yeah, and 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 because I left out one of the other wines, I like drinking a lot right now, which is you know champagne, particularly sort of site specific champagne. We didn't talk about champagne, yeah, but that falls a, in every you know what's hot trend, grower, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, bubbles are hot. Yeah, and, and grower champagne's hot within. Anyway, yeah. and they have a spectacular list of of those wines. Um, Give me th- one more. You know. Um, I'm trying to think of someone that would be that would be sort of well i i mean this is a <laughs> this is unfair because the list isn't any good so it doesn't exist but i do love going to street and and in queens and bringing my own wine with me um because that's I, a cool thing you know i they they have a very forgiving what's the name of the place street s-r s-r-i P-A-P-H-A-I. I now, mean, you're going there because it's one of the best Thai restaurants great, in the New York area. It's a great area. Thai restaurant. Okay. It's been around a long time. It's very it's very Thai, not Thai American. Right. And and they have Which a- Which is Chinese is now Chinese American. Yeah. They have a sushi. Moder- they have a very moderate cork policy, and it's nice. kind of a wine business hangout a little that's bit. A good, uh, that's a good yeah. recommendation. First time we had a- B-Y-O-B. Yes. And I like that. <laughs> I, I don't want to upset the restaurant business. No, no, it's no, like no. everybody should go out and drink wine, you know, at restaurants, but I do like going to I street agree. Pie. <laughs> All right. What is Ray Isle's favorite all-time wine? One or two, you know, if you can't. Is there any, th- is it a birth date wine? Is it something? Yeah. I think the wine that, I, I, it, it goes on being my favorite wine, I think, because it's the, you know, a lot, like a lot of people in the business, I have a wine that, that was that moment of revelation wine. And for me, it was a 1984 uh, a Diamond Creek Volcanic Hill Cabernet from uh, uh, from Napa, and I had it um, at a... Al Bronstein. Uh, yeah, I had it at a dinner uh, with a with a long-ago girlfriend and her father. That relationship didn't last, but um, it was one of those moments where I was first getting into wine, and I... And I he bought it. He'd been to the. I think he'd been to Napa. And he'd been to the property. And he said it was good. It's like okay, sounds good. And I tasted it. And I remember. I just remember spending that entire dinner, like not really paying attention to the conversation, but paying attention to the wine, which you is probably a sign of why the relationship didn't take succeed. Him by it. Yeah. But but the wine was just so good. And every sip I took, it was like, oh nice. my god, um, good one. Um, all right, give me your recommendation, and you should be able to answer this. Give me a recommendation for the best wine around 15 bucks. Give me a red, give me a white. I told you my kids are in their 20s. They're starting to yep. make money. They're yep. going to dinner party. They don't want to bring crappy wines. Well, give me a red. You can give me a category, a maker. Yeah. You know, you could say Muscadet. Well, well you can give me <laughs> give me one red, um, give me one white. I would say, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I think that you could do really well with um, Italian reds from the south um, in that sort of $15 zone from Puglia and so on. Um, the Neprica from Tormoresca is good. Cantelles, um, uh, Negromaro is a really nice wine. We're talking 15 20 bucks. Yeah. Talking okay. fifteen bucks. I mean, these are not wildly complex, but they offer a lot of flavor for the money, and they're and they're fun to drink. Great um, recommendation. How about a white? You know, white. Um, it's I, I don't remember. It might be a little higher. The 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 basic Donhoff Riesling is like twenty one. Okay, say, and that's, it's just like stupidly good wine for the price. Um, so D-O-N-N-D-O-N-N-H-O-F-F. Donhoff Riesling. Yeah. But you're in a great spot for about 20 bucks yeah. for Riesling with a great maker. Yeah. Those are good ones. All right. So those are Ray's wine list answers. We'll post them on our social media. I'll give you more information at the end. All right, Ray, let's, we have a few minutes left. You brought in a bottle of wine. I did. Uh, every week we taste a different wine on air for our weekly wine sip. I ask our guests if they'd like to bring something in. Ray decided to bring in an Australian wine, not coincidentally because it's Australian Wine Week in New York. <laughs> exactly. Right, so, Ray, tell us about. Let's well, pour it out. Yeah, I'll pour some out. Um, tell us what we're drinking. It's okay. You can go off mic. Pour in the wine. Good. So, what are we drinking? Give me the maker. The what we're blend. drinking is the maker's Yangara. Um, the wine is Y A N G A R R A Yangara. It's the High Sands Grenache, which comes from um, an old vineyard planted in 1946 in sandy soil in the McLaren Vale. Um, it is large wine growing region, the McLaren Vale. Large wine growing region. Though these guys work biodynamically, so they're 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 in that organic and beyond organic zone. Um, what I like about it. What year <laughs> is this? Uh, this is 2015, I think. 2015. Um, it's, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a big production wine. It's actually a pretty expensive wine, but, um, 
but hey, I brought you an expensive wine. Um, but what I like pizza, about it, right? yes. Well, I'd see, I knew there would be pizza. I had to bring a wine that worked with pizza. Um, we'll finish it. So let's talk about it. So, so it's is it all Grenache or predominantly it's, Grenache? It's all, it's all Grenache, all very old vine, all biodynamically formed. What it does, what the reason I brought it brought it is because I think, and I've been to Australia a couple times recently. There, there's so much going on in Australia right now in terms of wine that America doesn't know about, and and it's partly because Yellowtail sort of took over the American market for right. wine. I mean, for Australian wine. By, Ooh. <laughs> well, it's it's crazy, like. You know, it's hard to find a category of any product where someone has like sixty percent of the entire market, and and as a result, it shifted people's actual basic understanding of what Australian wine could be. And everybody sort of right. assumed it was affordable Shiraz that was juicy and 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 very consistent, and and to my mind, not wildly exciting. You know, but the truth is, there are um, a lot of really talented and really interesting winemakers in Australia doing really cool stuff, and. Unfortunately, a lot of them have just kind of thrown up their hands like, I don't even bother to export to America anymore. But right. but that's changing as you're starting. I think we hit the sort of trough, we hit the bottom of the trough, and we're climbing back up again. And you're starting to see, um, just as some of the tastings I've been to this week for the Australia Week thing, you're starting to see more and more of these small production, artisanal, you know, ambitious, interesting Australian wines creep back into the U.S. market. And, Which is great. And they're, I mean... It is so not a country of only big, giant, juicy Shirazes. Right. You know, there's... there's well, we're drinking a Grenache. We're drinking a beautiful Grenache, and it's... And it's All right, so let's let's evaluate it. Yeah. So, color is a kind of a deep claret red. Deep ruby. Kind of, yeah, it's not know. a brooding dark wine, yeah. but it's a dark, it's a dark I mean, ruby. You can see light through it. It's not It's not like a super right. extracted purple monster. But it's it's got some depth yeah. in the color. Let's go nose. Give me yeah. your nose descriptors. Well, for me, that's that combination of, of of sort of you know wild strawberry, which is Red which fruit. is I mean that's such a wine geek thing to say, but wild strawberries actually are a little different than cultivated strawberries because cultivated strawberries don't actually smell like a. No, and they're they a like teeny a bit more sour, <laughs> yeah, you know, and tasty. So, so you got the red strawberry, you got and that, what else? You've de- you definitely got you know a little touch of pepper on the finish on the on the end of the note on the end of that the aroma, spiciness. yeah, you know, which is the. All right, Ray. Let's then, let's give it a. We gave it a sniff. Let's throw it over the tongue. Let's first start with mouthfeel, sort of a right. medium. Medium body. So not big, not massive, not not super high alcohol, very bright acidity, mm. I mean, which is what people don't expect from Australian wine. And great for food. And great for food. Um, it's almost, I mean, it's tangy. It's almost a cit- yes. very citrusy acidity on the finish. At the same time, that kind of, you know, really, really, you know, lovely berry fruit. Um, the citrusy is a great description yeah. because not all wines give you that yeah that and freshness and the acidity and, and people also don't think of a, of, of you know red wines as, as providing citrus notes but it does is it sort of limit the acidity and then and then it's just very sustained yes it's like you can take it's a sip got a good finish yeah yeah um all right give me a mouthfeel not mouthfeel give me um palate what are we I'm sure some of the nose, the strawberry transfers. Well, again, strawberry. What, yeah, strawberry. Um, strawberry, a little a little bit of red cherry. Um, definitely some pepper, um, you know, and drying, you know, very fine tannins, but but um, but present so that you can feel it dry out your tongue at the, towards the end. That's where that sort of pizza would come in really good. Um, but it, yes. need, it needs I, those to keep it alive. So we got to wrap up. Yeah. We got to do a few things quickly. Tell me quickly what foods you'd pair with this. So you said pizza. What else? Well, yeah, the pizza that's right in front of us is yeah, really good. It's got a little it's, super it's, it's on it. me at the but moment. Give me another you know, thing. I I think I would. I mean, I would actually choose something like a roast chicken. You know, um, perfect with some herbs on the on. You know, it could handle herbs all or, of it. or you know. Um, so we like this yeah. wine a lot. I think it's good wine. So I it's like it. Yangara. What's the it, name it, of the bottle? The, it's the High Sands Grenache. High Sands Grenache, yeah. 2015. Yeah, I'll post more information yeah. on our website. It's not cheap. It's all right, Ray Isle. We have to wrap up. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby, my account, and hashtag uh, The Grape Nation. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. Also, subscribe to The Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'll post Ray's wine list. And we'll post our weekly wine sip. I'll give you all the specific information on all our social media sites. Ray, where can we find you on social? 
You can find me um, Instagram at Ray Isle. Okay, um, R A Y I S L E. Yep. And Twitter, um, I'm Isle Wine. Isle Wine. I- and if people want to dig around and look for stories, they should Food go foodandwine.com. Dot com. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm present all over foodandwine.com. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> um, and there's the current issue we talked about, Georgian wines and. The magazine celebrated its 40th anniversary. That's why Ray did 40 wines. That changed the way we drink wine. All right, I want to thank our guest, Ray Isle. Ray is the executive wine editor of Food & Wine magazine. Thank you to our engineer, Jeet, who's sitting in for the first time today for me. Um, And I want to thank everyone at Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.